You're listening to 3CR's Renegade Economist with your host, Carl Fitzgerald, as we investigate the role of landlords, bankers and natural monopolies through the eyes of the commons. Our birthrights, our birthrights. Welcome to the Renegade Economist with your host, Carl Fitzgerald. This week in Mackay, the city is based halfway along the enormous Queensland coast. We're finding it's often 100 kilometres between towns. The city is widely recognised as the gateway to the Bowen Basin Coal Mining Reserve, the single largest coal reserve in Australia with 34 operational coal mines. It's also nicknamed the sugar capital of Australia. About a third of our sugar comes out of this region. And uh, as, I, as I look around me, I'm surrounded by cane fields. Quite pretty. So let's settle into today's interview. All right. The Renegade Economists on 3CR this week broadcasting out of the Mackay Environment Centre. And I'm lucky to be sitting here with Patricia Julian, the senior researcher and Peter McCallum, the coordinator of the Mackay Environment Centre that was opened way back in 1994 by Dr. Bob Brown. So you guys have seen a big change in your city and the pressures on the environment. What are some of the the overriding pressures that uh, your environmental centre is is concerned with? Oh, the big one right now is land clearing in the state. Uh, in the Great Barrier Reef catchments because um, we've got too much sediment and herbicides and pesticides going into our Great Barrier Reef lagoon and we need to... um, uh, A lot of the clearing is for large agricultural projects to export goods to China and if we um, allow the the 300,000 a year to be... Uh, hectares a year to be cleared, then we've got a real problem uh, in terms of management of that. So the state government is trying to bring in um, the old laws that applied before the previous government changed the laws to allow this kind of massive land clearing. So that's a big one. And so the economic incentives are obviously there with China and their their insatiable desire for resources is is uh, an underwriting pressure. But how have they changed the legislation with so much uh, climate-related uh, talk about land clearing? How have we gone backward with relation to mines or land agriculture? Clearing. Because we've got it's it, we get land cleared for mines and for agriculture. Uh, there's even less, um, fewer restrictions on clearing land for mining than there is for agriculture, but agriculture occupies a larger area. So um, there's, you know, the scale of the impacts for land clearing on biodiversity loss for that sort of thing, um, which is quite high in our region, uh, is big. Uh, We have about 500 uh, kilometres west of here, uh, the Bowen Basin. Uh, It goes from west of um, the Whitsundays down to west of Rockhampton and the the Bowen Basin has been heavily mined and now they're talking about mining the Galilee Basin which is another coal deposit that runs north-south-west of here as well, further west than the Bowen Basin. So there's a lot of uh, clearing and with with our soils in the region we have uh, granite-derived soils and uh, they're highly sodic and they're highly... um, susceptible to erosion once they're cleared. 
So reclamation of the mine sites has been something Peter's been working on, he could probably address, and uh, that's really important. Uh, and it's not being done properly at the moment. So, Peter, can you then build on uh, th that concern then of land clearing? Because, yeah, I, I was under the impression that we, we had some reasonable legislation in place, but obviously the, the mining lobby has chipped away at that. Um, yeah, back in uh, the early 2000s, things were pretty much settled. Uh, you know, the uh, graziers and other, you know, sort of landholders had come to an agreement with the state government and uh, environmentalists that, you know, there was a, a system in place which still allowed some clearing. Uh, it was done on a balloted uh, process where, you know, you, you'd put in for, for, the, for the right to clear some land. But um, pretty much there was, a, uh, you know, a, a lots of limitations that weren't there in the, you know, the, the, the uh, 20th century. Um, then in, under the Newman government, which was in power for three years, uh, there was a uh, restrictions were removed on things like clearing for high value agriculture. But the high value agriculture turns out not to be such high value agriculture in the end. You know, it was just clearing to to uh, grow sorghum and other crops that you know not not usually considered as high value. So. So we've, uh, we've had a uh, system in place and now the, the Queensland government is trying to reinstitute laws that will, will bring back some of the controls that were there previously. Uh, but it's very contentious. Uh, the Queensland parliament is, is on a knife edge. Uh, it's probably going to come down to a single vote of the Speaker of the Parliament you know, who, will, who will decide whether or not these laws are, in, uh, are reintroduced. So... Uh, you know the depend the the future of the Great Barrier Reef, the future of climate, because Queensland we know has a higher rate of emissions of of, uh, of carbon into the atmosphere than any other state in Australia, even though we have a lower, a smaller population, and that a lot of that can be attributed to uh, the increase in in land clearing that's occurring in Queensland. As we're surrounded by sugar processing factories here, the emissions look pretty uh, significant uh, in terms of uh, the smokestacks, but you're saying that the land clearing itself and the, uh, the methane released through decomposition and so forth is what's really pushing up the emissions here. Yeah, well, I suppose, you know, you remove the trees which can absorb carbon dioxide and you, you clear the trees and they're burnt or they're, you know, whatever, and so that does release carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. As far as the sugar industry goes, uh, there's some interesting, you know, things that are being done in the area. So we do produce about one third of Mackay's electricity from burning waste products from sugar. Uh, so it's uh, uh, there's the, you know the the sh one of the sugar mills here in Mackay uh, is is renewably powered. Uh, so it's taking what was formerly, you know, the the leaves and other uh, and plant material that was it became a waste product after sugar milling and it's now burned uh, so in over a single year that's that's a renewable carbon neutral form of power so so some people are looking at positive things uh and you know that's a great story uh there are other issues with sugar in terms of you know managing the land 
Well, I'm pleased to hear some positive developments. I, I drove past the Sugar Research Institute on the way here and I was like, wow, that's a big extensive building. I wonder what they get up to there. There's some positives coming out of industry because everywhere you look there's sugar cane. I kind of wonder how this poor soil uh, survives just being uh, planted uh, again and again and again, but uh, somehow the farmers and their fertilizers are, are holding steady. The soil, if you stopped and went on most of those farms, there is no soil profile anymore. You just pick it up, it would blow away. Uh, it has huge inputs of fertiliser in order to produce the crops. Uh, Sugarcane has the highest rate of photosynthesis of most plants, and uh, so it's not a bad crop in that way. Uh, there's a lot of things you can make. You can make um, plastic out of, out of sugarcane. So there's opportunities there other than just producing sugar from it. But the sugar research centre that you saw um, is no longer operational funding problems because the sugar industry has battled to survive for some decades now. Prices go up and down and they've been mostly down for many years. So we're a, uh, an area where uh, we, we are dependent on commodities and commodities produce import earnings of which Australia is very dependent on. So mining and agriculture are the two biggies for our import earnings, but we have to manage our agriculture and mining in ways that are much better than we do right now. We have to avoid things like black lung with our miners and health problems like that that haven't been addressed properly in the past. We have no National Clean Air Act, for example, um, and we need something like that to handle these problems. Now, in terms of the runoff from this land clearing into the, the rivers and that ending up in the reef, explain the, the, the gamut of problems that that is pushing upon. Uh, our beautiful Great Barrier Reef up here that's also uh, struggling from record uh, uh, coral bleaching with uh, the temperatures heating up day by day. Most of the problems with the last major bleaching effort earlier this year was uh, in the northern part of Australia that doesn't have as much agriculture and doesn't have mining, as much mining as, as we have in our region. So that was really a more macro effect from global warming per se at the global scale. But the, quali the quality of our inshore water under the reports from the Great Barrier Reef that come out... Um, periodically, that that is poor. We have from about Cooktown on down along our eastern coast of Queensland, we have a C, C plus rating. So that's the inshore quality. And that's primarily poor management of, our, of much of our grazing lands um, and clearing. And the, the, the runoff has brought that sediment down to be about five times higher than it was in pre-European times, and that's impacted the reef. The um, excess nitrogen from agriculture, uh, you get the crown of thorns problems. Um, so that's the, other, that's the other issue too. The herbicides, pesticides, and the sediment are the big ones we have to worry about. The fact that we've cleared the land of so much of its tree cover, grass cover, has led to eroding of the soils. At a, at a very high rate. 
And Peter, what about some of the the old school farmers that have been here generation after generation? It's been interesting seeing the Greens opening up a bit of a divide within the National Party's uh, broad-based rural supporter uh, network in that uh, some people are seeing uh, the effects of these fertilisers as damaging the water table and so on and perhaps moving more towards a permaculture style of thinking. Uh, How is that playing out in the Mackay region? Oh, you know, there are some farmers who are, you know, thinking uh, positively about the, you know, the future of the land. Um, uh, they're thinking about, uh, you know, how to how to manage, you know, uh, into the future and the uh, the impacts that their practices have had in the past. So there are some changes, I suppose. Uh, even if all the cane farmers say in the in this region adopted best practice according to the industry then we still wouldn't be protecting the reef. You know, there's, there's, uh, there'd be still major impacts on the Great Barrier Reef. So, so the, the, the best practices need to, to improve quite considerably. And I don't think that the cane industry, the sugar cane industry, can, uh, can afford the cost of adopting the, those strategies that are needed. So there needs to be a serious money put into, into protecting the reef uh, if we're going to maintain it as a, as a long-term uh, economic generator for Queensland uh, because we know that it it brings in around six billion dollars a year in tourism um, uh, value uh, and supports um, I think uh, you know up to uh, seventy thousand jobs in Queensland so that's that's very important from an economic perspective and people understand that you know the the people who are concerned about economics understand those figures but also you know the intrinsic beauty and value of the reef the ecosystem you know that that it supports is is important to other people as well you know and um, so but the cost we've we heard uh, during the federal election campaign that the Labor Party promised to put in around 500 million dollars into protecting the reef of new money uh, the um, the Liberal National Party promised a billion of reallocated money, I think, into into the reef. But uh, a report was leaked from the Queensland government, which showed that uh, the cost of rehabilitating land and protecting the Great Barrier Reef was going to be more like sixteen billion dollars. And we understand that it may actually be much higher than that. It may be up to twenty-five. That was the low-end figure in that report. So there's, uh, you know, twenty-five billion dollars is something that the sugar and grazing industries are not going to come up with. We need to see some serious investment from the federal government, especially, um, in order to maintain the reef and uh, keep its world heritage listing. Uh, if we lose that, then we'll lose all those tourism jobs and and. Uh, all that money that's coming into Queensland. You're on 3CR's Renegade Economist with your host Carl Fitzgerald and this week we're broadcasting out of the Mackay Environment Centre with Patricia Julian, Senior Researcher, and Peter McCallum, the coordinator up here. Now, uh, $7 billion tourism industry, how does that rack up then against the agricultural sector and the mining sector? Uh, What's the difference there between the size of those industries uh, I know tourism keeps growing. It seems like 50% of the vehicles I pass on the road are RVs or caravans of some sort. So it must have a huge impact on the local economy. And for a long time, the tourism industry has been drowned out by these insiders within mining and agriculture. Well, um, we know that you know the, tur- the mining industry was a huge driver for an, for a decade. Uh, that it was. 
Uh, there was lots of money being made as China went through a uh, through an export boom and required lots of coal, lots of steel, uh, and uh, so in this particular part of the world we have uh, uh, one of the biggest coal ports in Australia and the plans for uh, construction of the biggest uh, future coal port at, uh, so north of us. So we have uh, we're we're right at the centre of the coal export industry and that was uh, driving up the costs of living, costs of housing, costs of labour and everything in this area. So any industry that wasn't associated directly with the mining in industry uh, suffered from enormous increases in, in costs. So the, the tourism industry in particular struggled uh, as the Australian dollar rose and peaked at uh, you know uh, about eight cents higher than the US dollar. But in recent times, we've seen that the, uh, the Australian dollar has declined uh, in value again and that uh, the tourist industry is, is increasing. So, so uh, the Sundays, which are just north of Mackay, um, have seen the number of visitors increase by about 30% in recent years. Uh, so now that it is a bigger tourism destination than, than Cairns, for instance. So it's really important that we continue to support the tourism industry and that it's done in a sustainable way as well, that, you know, that there's, uh, uh, you know, limitations placed on the number of tourists that visit certain areas of the reef so that they're not impacted badly. Yes, well, it kind of shocked me staying at some of the, the beautiful Queensland beaches along here and there being an absence of uh, composting toilets, a Tiwa Beach in the Great Sandy National Park. Um, just north of Bribie Island, uh, there was an incredible space. Uh, we were able to camp right on the beach. It was a bit like a highway, though, with uh, fishermen driving past every five seconds and doing burnouts all around the place. And unfortunately, that culture of respect for the environment uh, wasn't on show, uh, if you like, when you looked at uh, all of the, the plastic that uh, the, the Bundaberg rum cans left lying about the place. It was quite shocking. And it just... you. You often, you know, you do hear about this far north Queensland mentality of rednecks and, and you know, petrol guzzlers and so forth. How, how are you working to change that mentality so that there is a respect for future generations? Oh, you know, we uh, we do our advocacy role. Um, we The the Mackay Conservation Group's been around for about 30 years, um, a bit more than that actually, and we've been campaigning on a whole range of issues that, you know, from rainforest protection to protecting the reef and, uh, you know, and, and educating people about the importance of our, our local environments and uh, species that are important in this area. So, you know, we play a, an educational role, which, you know, I think people sort of take into account. If you talk to fishing, people who get involved in fishing, which is a very popular pastime here in Mackay, They'll recognise now that the things that we were campaigning about back in the, um, the early 2000s, such as introducing more extensive green zones within the Great Barrier Reef Marine Park, uh, how, are now really producing great results for them. So back in those days, people were saying, oh, you're locking us out of 30% of the, the reef uh, by putting in green zones. 
Now they're saying, oh, those green zones are great because the fish are growing up in those green zones and they're spilling out into the surrounding waters and we're able to catch bigger fish than we ever have. So, you now, know... That's the, fantastic. What sort of numbers are coming through there? Because, uh, you know, in terms of fish weights and fish numbers and, and catch size surrounding those green zones, because I know um, off the coast of Florida and, and, and other areas in America where they have these fishing-free zones, uh, certainly uh, with nature allowed to, to grow at its, its normal rate, uh, the fish stocks replenish rather quickly. Well, I think that it's uh, it's still ongoing that because uh, that those uh, laws were put in, those changes were put in place by Robert Hill, who's a, the Environment Minister in the Howard government back in two thousand and four. Uh, so it's it's a it's still a, a work in progress, but people are starting to see the results anecdotally. Uh, scientists are starting to examine what's happening, but the the research and the modelling that was being done back in those days was that fish would, by not being uh, caught, uh, would grow bigger. And we know that it's not a linear relationship between the, the size of fish and the, um, and the number of babies they have, that, but the number of babies increases much more rapidly than the size of the fish themselves. So, so as they have more, then we see more and more fish having to leave the green zones and find a new home elsewhere so that's that's the advantage of having a great breeding site and they were carefully selected so that they weren't just reefs that were protected in in this program they were also protecting seagrass and other and links between river systems and the reef because we know fish like barramundi for instance need to spend time in rivers and freshwater in order to 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 breed successfully it's certainly uh, something exciting to, to, to hear more of these positive stories about the, the work that environmental groups have done for decades and then the economic results slowly showing up. And uh, uh, that link of, of uh, trying to recreate the natural environments for fish. Uh, there's a group here in Mackay called Reef Catchments, which caught my eye, and they had a project, uh, Fish Hotels are Hot Real Estate for Mackay. So uh, here they were trying to recreate um, some of the fish habitats, uh, you know, building man-made havens for, for these fish. And uh, th that's another positive that's needed. But uh, you're saying 25 billion plus is needed to regenerate um, the reef. Uh, wouldn't it be more economically efficient if we just taxed Roundup and some of these other fertilisers that are hurting uh, our, our water catchments? Is there any movement to regulate uh, Roundup or any of these other damaging fertilisers? Uh, they're regulated at the um, federal level. Uh, there's a, an organisation, it's a tricky name and I've forgotten it, sorry, I can't think of it offhand, but uh, when Diron was um, implicated in the loss of mangroves, because it's very good at clearing out weeds and cane drains, but it's terrible when it gets into marine species because they're terribly sensitive and it destroys their photosynthetic ability. Uh, so we had some large mangrove diebacks along the coast and there was an attempt then to reduce the amount of diorone that was put onto the uh, weeds and um, other problems that we had. The end result was that they did lower it but it still, it still can be a problem. Um, mm. So there's a lot of politics comes into this and there's also economics because really, and you get this with air quality as well um, and getting cold, cold dust down, it's a matter of, of zero harm is not possible 
because of the economic implications of that. So it's um, what level of harm and risk can you reduce things to where you can still make money on producing something. So it really comes down to that. Mm, well, taxing at source would be um, a, a, a useful first step, but as you suggest, the the politics of that is often very difficult. But it's just so frustrating when you hear these stories that we're going to have to spend $25 billion rather than stop the problem at the source and encourage them to use more environmentally uh, uh, adaptive um, yeah, means they're, they're, we all we all know this but the politics how long is it going to take people to really understand these issues well i've been trying <laughs> for a decade <laughs> we, we've all been trying haven't <laughs> and we and other people have been trying very hard as well yep. uh it, it, it's a matter of um should we be in the sugar business or should we be in some other business and uh, what are the alternatives and uh doing a cost analysis of those and any maybe unforeseen consequences uh, that they might spin off and, and create an even bigger problem. But we have, we have plenty of wind on the coast. We have plenty of solar. And so there's, there are barriers, and, and some of them have been political barriers and a very strong mining lobby. And the thing is that the mining lobby, when, it, when you've got a boom on, does bring in a lot of export dollars, and Australia's a country that does depend very heavily on export earnings. So can we wean ourselves off that a bit? Can mm. we you know, be, be um, innovative, as the Prime Minister is trying to get us all to be, and be more innovative and come up with these, these different, different ideas? And that means we need a decent education system that encourages our kids to be innovative. We need decent teachers who can do that as well. So... Um, if you're looking about where's the best bang for your buck, maybe in those areas uh, in order to um, avoid getting into these dead ends will be the way to go. And that's a really hard ask because politics... People are very slow and reluctant to change because they've done something one way and it's very hard to... Um, even, even personally, I think, you know, there's times when I'll say, no, I just don't want to make the change. That's, it's a human... Understanding human nature and, and how human beings work... Change is hard enough, let alone having a, uh, a $1 million mortgage hanging over your head and mm-hmm. so forth. So that's where the land price always causes so much consternation. It, it's just so hard to change. Uh, so, yeah, I'm looking across your website, makaiconservationgroup.org.au, I was struck by the Blair Athol mine and uh, the situation there where BHP selling a mine for $1, Peter McCallum. Now, what's the story there? What's going on? Uh, Well, it's uh, another case of a mining company trying to offload a cost onto the community. Um, So it's actually uh, Rio Tinto, the owner of that mine, uh, along with a couple of other smaller uh, partners in in the venture. But um, they're the main player. They're a big, world's second biggest mining company. So they've decided to flog off um, Blair Athol Mine, which they closed in 2012 uh, because the resource had been exhausted, according to, to to Rio Tinto. They've offered to sell it for $1 to a small debt laden a uh, company called Terracom Resources uh, that uh, from their most recent statements saying that they've got a, a, a debts of 132 million plus 12 million US and they have, from what we can see, a, a, a mine in Mongolia that's not operational. Uh, they have some, some exploration leases and things like that. So a company with a lot of debts, uh, very little in the in the way of resources, and uh, they're going to take over a mine that's going to cost 
On the calculations done by Rio Tinto and revealed to the Queensland government $80 million to rehabilitate. But uh, a recent report that was leaked to Mackay Conservation Group and locked the gate uh, shows that that figure should be more like $101 million. That was from a desktop study. If they went and did some on-the-ground research, they might find that it's more in the order of $160 million, $200 million, maybe $300 million to rehabilitate that site. So Rio's trying to get out of its uh, responsibilities to Queensland and Australia and, uh, and not mine the land that they... You know, not rehabilitate the land as they should. Um, That's shocking. Hey? Talk about planned obsolescence of a corporate structure is what you're, you're basically saying. There'll be some sort of phoenix operation where the directors will declare bankruptcy in a few years' time, turn up working for Rio Tinto on a seven-figure sum somewhere around the planet. Well, who knows what will happen down that track, but we know that in the past, in Australia, there are 50,000 abandoned mine sites. We know that in Queensland, there are 15,000 of them and that's the mining industry's legacy. Of the past six mines that have gone, that have been abandoned, that means that you know, someone's walked away, there's no one around who can be found to pay for the cleanup. Uh, the bonds that were collected by the Queensland government are insufficient in five out of the six of those most recent abandonments. Uh, so. There was a huge flood too, wasn't there, out of a maybe a nickel mine or something somewhere in Queensland. I remember reading about six months ago. Huge yeah, environmental so the destruction. Tex- the Texas uh, silver mine, I think, is the one you might be talking about there, where... Uh, the the mine went into receivership because uh, the bond w- was inadequate and w- the government had asked for them to increase it, and so that's been uh, it hasn't been listed as an abandoned mine yet. They're still looking for a buyer who can take over the responsibility for cleaning up. But if if there's a if there's heavy rainfall, then it, the tailings dam on that mine is 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 close to breaching and it contains a lot of cyanide so that's very dangerous would flow down into the numeric river from texas which is on the the border of queensland and new south wales into uh, into new south wales and cause huge damage we just south of us at rockhampton there's the old mount morgan gold mine and i was there a couple of weeks ago the there's signage 45 kilometres downstream telling you not to drink, swim or fish from that river because of the uh, nature of the water fr- flowing out of the mine. So, you know, across Queensland there are huge, uh, there are some very, very big mines that have been abandoned and there are lots of little ones as well. 15,000 mines and uh, many of them reach uh, hundreds of metres underground, perilously close to uh, underground water tables. What would be your recommendation for the the size and significance of environmental bonds? What's the best practices needed to protect future generations? Well, we know from this uh, leaked report that came out, uh, you know, that was released uh, to us, uh, you know, a, a couple of weeks ago, that uh, the current bonds that have been held by the Queensland government of $5.4 billion are inadequate by, by a figure of maybe $3.2 billion. So there's, there's, uh, there's more money needs to be collected there. We, we believe that, you know, that there needs to be some mechanism put in place to clean up those abandoned mines as well. So the industry should take ownership of that problem. They caused it. They're leaving it for the Queensland uh, taxpayers to do the work rather than the industry itself. And we also think that, you know, there's, there, there is an opportunity here. You know, there's a lot of unemployed people in this area. The unemployment rate is officially 6.5%, you know, but we all know that, you know, if you've got an hour's work a week, then you're not classed as unemployed anymore. So, so 
uh, the, only, the real unemployment rate is probably much higher than that. And talking to people, it's quite hard to find a job in Mackay at the moment. But there's all this rehabilitation work that needs to be done. And there's a lot of money available there uh, to do it. And there's some big companies like Rio Tinto, like uh, BHP and others that still have plenty of cash in the bank. And, they're, and they're, they have the funds available to do rehabilitation in Australia. And they should be doing that work and doing it progressively as they mine rather than leaving it all to the end and then flogging it off to some small player uh, who's got no hope of ever rehabilitating those mine sites. What percentage of uh, Rio Tinto does the Queen own here in Queensland? She's about to destroy her own land. It's That's just outrageous that they can do that. So what sort of uh, legal proceedings are you guys preparing for over that? The problem with um, mining uh, and the, the way that the rules are written for mining companies is that um, there's no clear definition of, uh, of, of, of ha- how soon you should start rehabilitating a mine site. So companies just say, oh, well, look, we're going to do it later. So taking enforcement action is difficult for both the Queensland government and uh, the community, although there are provisions within uh, the Environmental Protection Act for community action to be taken against uh, mining companies through, through the legal system. But, you know, we're, we're looking at whatever options are available. We're certainly trying to put pressure on the, on the mining industry to, to live up to its, its social responsibilities and its environmental responsibilities and do the work that it's promised to do and clean up these mine sites and hopefully in the process employ some people. I hear that Mitch Hook, the former uh, chief of the Minerals Council of Australia, uh, is uh, enjoying his uh, recent Queen's Gong that he received. Perhaps he's looking for a new job and can lead uh, this rehabilitation process. Uh, Patricia, you mentioned on the phones, you know, the, the macroeconomic forces here in Mackay and how the winding back of the mining boom uh, has put some pressures on government to try and deliver a new fillip for employment for for growth in the area what sort of perspectives are you are you seeing here at the Mackay Environment Centre? We get people asking for opportunities in the rehab business they've heard about our campaign to to address that so um, that's there are people who are losing their houses one chap told us this morning his the price of his second property is now a third of it what it was during the boom industry so those kinds of boom-bust pressures are what people face. Because the census is only held every six years, or the monies that come into an area like this that could be subject to incredible stress and pressures from a boom cycle, the money's not there at the time because the earlier figures from the census showed it, it wasn't going to uh, grow at, at the, that kind of rate. So there's nothing built into the national system of apportioning funding for places that, that suffer these boom-bust cycles. And it leaves us with really nothing to replace it. We lose, in the, in the boom periods, people who can't afford to live here. They're the people that hold communities together. Mm. They're the ones that, that volunteer the most, that sort of thing. That glue is gone, and we have this fractured system where... Uh, people who don't know the area, don't know how it operates, come in and uh, leave, eat shoots and leaves. <laughs> uh, yes, that's basically what happens. So uh, they're not as connected to the community and invested in the community. So we're left without that knowledge base in order to cope with the downtimes. So that makes it very difficult and then and we, and the funding isn't there either to, to cope. So we need a bigger share of the pie 
when these boom times come in order to uh, develop something more sustainable. But we certainly need that, that addressed in this region and in other regions that are going through the same problems. And I've heard stories that as uh, the mining boom has dwindled here over the last few years, property prices have been falling. Many mm. properties are down $100,000, $150,000 in value. Mm. They're, you know, after rapid escalation of probably double that, some 300000 in a few years. And uh, as you mentioned before, Peter, the unemployment rates is quite high. And... Uh, uh, vacancy rates for housing is whole streets uh, there's whole streets in the town where nobody is there we, we know this because we did a survey the end of last year and um we knocked on doors nobody was there really Flats, units tell there. me about that you you know what we do in melbourne we survey using water consumption as a proxy for mm -hmm. vacant housing and that's how we can calculate over 12 months through 264 suburbs, uh, some 82,000 empty homes. And that doesn't include all of the land that's being banked on the sprawl where they don't turn the water meters on until the uh, contract of sale has passed mm. hands. So it, there's a lot of uh, this speculative um, pressure that it seems to me what I'm hearing about out in Chinchilla, a mining uh, megalith or a former mining megalith in the Bowen Basin was that uh, uh, a lot of land was rezoned to build housing for these big mining um, communities that were expected. But of course, the nature of a mining uh, really changed to this fly in, fly out type mentality. Right. And so uh, people were conned into using their self-managed super funds to buy into these communities, only to find out that the mining company had set up their own town uh, w with all of the <laughs> trappings yes. of, uh, of fly in, fly out. Yeah, there's more and more of a trend to fly in, fly out so that um, basically it's a method to control the workforce, make them placid and docile because there. It's divide and conquer. Um, the mining industry practices that a lot. They'll come into an area and they'll they'll pick off the person who's going to give them the most trouble, and and uh, and then that makes the rest of the community more compliant in accepting the changes that come through. But miners, mining industry has never been a huge donor to local areas. There'll be some money spent locally, but not a huge amount compared to the amount that they're pulling out and the value of it. Because these are state-owned resources. They're the people's resources. Exactly. And uh, the Queen, the Newman government did slightly increase the royalties on coal. Uh, still that barely was a big five, battle. Yeah, that was a that big was a battle. battle. Yeah. Clive Palmer uh, mm. cracked a tantrum over that one, didn't he? But uh, you know, th so they should be increasing these royalties. If there's going to be all this environmental damage, if there's going to be these costs uh, of uh, affordability on the community, surely uh, that region should be getting something back uh, for those mm. costs. But mining is a third world industry. And so if you're going to increase your prices, you're competing with a third world country that doesn't feel it has any options but to keep prices as low as possible. So that's the difficulty of depending on these boom-bust mining type um, commodity industries. You've just got to have other alternatives and to make more sustainable communities. There's just no way around that. Mm, we can't be so reliant on one or two industries. So Peter McCallum, coordinator here at the Mackay Environment Centre, to finish off, you did a big report on the Urana Dam and uh, one of the things I'm concerned about is uh, the nature of these boom-bust cycles and when they, they uh, fail, 
when they fall apart, it leads to this form of disaster capitalism where uh, big infrastructure projects are very quickly rolled out to try and soak up some of those fly-in, fly-outs or some of those people who moved up here for the mining industry. So it seems like Urana Dam, it's been on the uh, drawing boards for a long time. Give us a lowdown on where it's at. Well, Urana Dam is uh, something that's been on the books since about the mid-60s. Uh, there's, I think there's been 17 uh, feasibility studies conducted on it since then, and every one of them has shown that it's uh, not an economic option, that it, doesn't, it won't produce uh, a return on investment. So under the, uh, the Liberal National Federal Government, there's been a proposal to fund infrastructure developments in northern Australia through the northern Australia infrastructure facility. I think the $5 mm. billion dollar fund. The Gina Reinhart, um, <laughs> owed to Gina Reinhart fund. Yes, and, the, and you know, and it's, it's uh, you know, what you would call, I suppose, a pork barrelling exercise. It's been, you know, beneficial to a number of um, members in the, you know, in North Queensland to help get them re-elected. So we saw uh, $2 million uh, promised uh, towards a feasibility study for Urana Dam prior to the federal election. And that's, you know, to do yet another study to hopefully this time shuffle the cards once more and come out with a reasonable hand, you know, that shows that there is some sort of economic uh, option that this this could produce. But we believe uh, from Patricia's work that uh, the 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 most likely beneficiaries of the water that would come from this dam would be the you know the mining uh, players downstream from the mine. Uh, they'd they'd get uh, cheap water that they don't have to pump upstream from another dam that's further down the down the system. Uh, they'd also there's also an interest from uh, coal seam gas operators in the around the Bowen Basin, and then of course there's the Galilee Adani project, which is way out. For, you know, west of Mackay, and it's still, still bubbling away. There's, uh, you know, though, though some people think it's, you know, it's never going to happen. There's, there's always the chance that, you know, the Adani company, is is uh, very stubborn, and and despite you know the falling coal price and the the uh, lack of uh, good quality coal there, the the uh, all the other impediments that are in their way, and the huge environmental damage and damage to uh, you know, the, the indigenous people's rights in that area, then, uh, you know, there's always every chance that that could proceed. So it's not a dead issue, and they certainly be looking for water from somewhere. Well, so much to talk about here. We've run up uh, 40 odd, 43 minutes, and we haven't even got to Adani, haven't got to Abbott Point. There's more issues to come here on The Renegade Economist as we travel further up the coast. I'm looking forward to visiting Abbott Point, uh, to visiting some of the Lock the Gate Alliance that are around the Cairns Environment Centre. It's fantastic work that you guys are doing here. Um, Yadana Dam, is that part of a bigger picture along the coastline, Patricia? You, uh, are there more of these infrastructure projects planned for the mining industry at the public purse's uh, cost? Well, I think it was more about the last election, federal election, and helping uh, people get over the over the line uh, for the current federal government than it was about anything else. Plus, um, the um, these massive arrow energy um, coal seam gas project that would be quite uh, close. There's also Queenslander who has mining interests over in that area who is building more mines and would love that water as well. So the NAIF funding will 
there are there are many dams that were put forward. There won't be enough money to build them all, which is why we think it's more political than anything else. So they're supposed to be subject to both feasibility studies plus uh, another a set of criteria which still haven't been defined as to uh, who will actually get the loans. But they're very long-term loans, so they could stretch off into the never-never in terms of how they'll, when they'll have to be paid. Mm. And uh, the mining industry had an opportunity for the Connors Dam south of here to... Uh, pay for that, get the dam built and pay for that water and that included Gina Hancock and they refused. So the dam wasn't built. So this is the next thing we hear is this NAIF funding, billions of dollars for these uh, feasibility studies and then to, to money, you know, taxpayer money to fund these dams. But um, none of them are showing that they'll be, uh, they'll pass the cost benefit. You should have a a one ratio for that, and all of them are uh, less than one. Uh, one got over the line. Urana gets over the line at just about 1.1, uh, but that doesn't include the environmental and cultural costs. So unless they're going to manipulate and fudge things, uh, none of these dams will be cost-effective. So that Urana dam will flood over 10,000 hectares of uh, land? It will, be be, it will be 105 square kilometres and uh, if it fills. That's another question because rainfall has been decreasing along the eastern coast and, and I looked at the um, local rainfall data for the large events and found from 1936 on for Mount Dalrymple up, up near that, at the headwaters of that broken river where that dam will be. And they before 1991, they used to regularly get in the wet season a thousand millimetres plus. Uh, since 1991, they haven't had over 405 millimetres. And all this was pointed out to the minister when I visited in October, the federal ministers, and the, the feasibility money still came through, but still promised. Uh, so I just have big questions about the uh, criteria and the, the actual credibility of this whole program. Wow. And uh, the Chinese, of course, are, are snooping around as the, the mining boom's winding back. It seems like there's all sorts of excuses for property development going along in terms of eco-tourism and so forth. Uh, how's that playing out with some of these exotic islands off this Great Barrier Reef? We've got one in the Mackay Regional area, and that is Lindemann Island. And um, uh, it, there was a... It's mostly national park... There was about a third of it put put aside for um, a perpetual lease. Goes runs for ninety nine years, and uh, that was for the the prior resort. That so there was a resort on the island, a tourist resort. But next to it, it had a short term lease for a golf course that was part of the national park. And now the Chinese developer wants to take over that, so that will double the size effectively of the resort area. And when you look at the current proposal, the EI, final EIS hasn't been put out yet, but when you look at the proposal, it's mostly for villas that can be sold off. So to us, it's a real estate speculation job. And uh, we've made the state ministers aware of our concerns about that. 
And not too far away, I imagine, is uh, Great Keppel Island. We just recently got a gambling license. So uh, these fly-in, fly-out gamblers that Brisbane is trying to lure there with their new uh, casino license um, going on board. It seems like a casino capitalism writ large. Uh, come and gamble, find some real estate to buy whilst you're here and, mm. and fly on out. Under the Newman government, Jeff Seney, uh, the development minister said um, you'll have to have an international airport before we'll consider casino license that's what he told the Whitsunday developers and I guess they must have one down near Keppel in order for them to have got that promise of a casino but yes they were they were trying on um, Lindemann for for that it wasn't the same it was a, a branch of the same company same parent company that also wanted a uh, casino licence for land um, that was on the mainland nearby. I wonder which one of James Packer's advisors is working for that company. Goodness me, uh, we've, it's just shocking, isn't it? Well, Glass? it comes down to what, how do you define an ecotourism um, pro- project? Yeah, what, what actually is it? There's no, there seem to be very many loose definitions of what constitutes an ecotourism development and uh, I think course, the state of, government needs to firm up on that one. And none of them include the cost of travelling in terms of carbon emissions into that ecotourism so by the time you bring that into play there's no way your travel can be ecologically sound mm-hmm. under the current system. Yeah the government sees it as another way to bring in a lot of jobs because you know there would be construction jobs within building thousands of little villa units but uh, what's the end result for our islands off the coast? That's and that's all we've got. Once they're gone, they can't. You can't replace them. Although China's tried to do that with the Spratly Islands, but who knows how long they'll last. Well, Peter, to wind us up finally, uh, what sort of impetus is happening here at the Mackay Environment Centre in terms of campaigning? We have uh, so much at our fingertips now with the digital medium. How is that playing out in terms of uh, the everyday person in Mackay starting to uh, gain more respect for the long-term view? Uh, I think, you know, like some of our campaigns that we're heading into are things like, you know, moving to Mackay towards a 100% renewable uh, energy-powered system for electricity, at least. Uh, and so those sorts of things. I think Mackay, it's, it's interesting, you know, we've got a place where we're, you know, the epicentre of the coal industry, and yet we have the highest rate of installation of uh, rooftop solar in Australia for two years running. It's incredible in up here how many solar panels everyone's got in Queensland. Absolutely. We've got plenty of sunshine, you know, and people realise that it's a beneficial thing both economically, and they also learn that it's, you know, it's great for the environment. I think that gives them a bit of a, a warm inner glow as well, so they're happy with that. Um, and so, we're, you know, we're pushing those positive things that that you know people are already switched on to and uh, we're going to be trying to move forward and set an example for the rest of Australia you know in that sense uh, in terms of the, the coal industry it's a you know it's a difficult campaign you know the, the industry itself I suppose has, uh, has created this, its own problems by oversupplying the market uh, worldwide uh, we know that China's currently got a bit of a hiccup in terms of getting rid of a lot of their their high cost mines and uh, and trying to reduce um, but the, uh, re- reduce the supply they have there, but their demand hasn't fallen as much as the supply has. So they've they're starting to increase imports again. So that's temporarily increased the the cost of uh, the price of coal, which is the industry sees as oh I'm, uh, you know 
a uh, real positive for the future. And I don't think that's going to last very long. Um, but, uh, you know, we really need to start looking towards a sustainable future for this part of the world that, um, you know, as Patricia's been talking about, you know, not boom and bust. That's, that, that was the, the, the past 15 years in Mackay has been a tremendously difficult time, uh, both as the boom came and we saw people who didn't have jobs in the mining industry having to leave town, struggling to pay rent, uh, you know, struggling to find wages that would match the cost of living. And then at the end of the boom, find a whole lot of people who are, you know, suffering from serious uh, economic and, and psychological problems as a result of the price of housing, of excessive numbers of vacant houses and, uh, you know, pr- uh, everything else falling. So, uh, and people losing their jobs, you know, all, all over the place. So, so we need to avoid those types of, uh, uh, of economic cycles if, if, if at all possible. It's not a... It's not something Mackay asked for. It's just something that we got. Uh, a lot of us never really had much participation in the mining industry. Others did uh, and, and benefited from it. But, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's something that, you know, I don't think anyone in Australia really wants to go through. Well, Peter McCallum, Patricia Julian, thank you so much for this extended interview. It was going to be 20 minutes, but here we are running 54. There's so many issues uh, at play. Well done for uh, flying the flag in the midst of, uh, yeah, this energy battleground. Thank you. Nice to meet you. Thank you. And there we have another extended Renegade Economist podcast. I hope you like that. I hope you can share it with your community. Of course, as soon as uh, we pressed uh, stop, uh, I got stuck into uh, how the Georgia's economic system would, would resolve some of these boom-bust problems they have. If we had a land tax in place, it would keep a lid on these housing prices. Uh, I'm shocked to hear that uh, people are paying $190 a week for a, for a room in a boarding house. You know, that's not much more than my $230 for my house that I was lucky enough to buy in 2007. And so the land tax would keep a lid on the land prices and of course the the resource rentals, the mining tax would keep a a lid on the the incredible coal profits so that uh, wages perhaps wouldn't be in their two or three hundred thousand dollar realm which does push up land prices, which does push out uh, those who aren't involved in the mining community uh, wages probably be a little bit more reasonable around the $100,000 mark. Hard to know without modelling, but uh, uh, the extremities of uh, of the need for coal would also be uh, downsized due to uh, the need for true cost uh, economics and the carbon tax that we so desperately need to usher in the change away from uh, these damaging polluting industries and that's why I was getting a bit uh, frustrated hearing about this 26 billion dollar uh, rehabilitation fee for the, the the reef when we could be taxing at source and stopping uh, the use of so many pesticides and it wouldn't cost us 26 billion dollars it would cost the the polluters that much money um, and and that funding uh, source could be channeled towards uh, the rehabilitation projects so uh, it would be inbuilt within the system to have these self-correcting measures so that the economy grew in harmony with the productive uh, nature of uh, the economy rather than the speculative one we live under. 
All right, my name's Kyle Fitzgerald. Don't forget to look up the Total Resource Rents of Australia report I wrote a few years ago if you really want to delve into the details behind uh, this economic rent revolution we're looking for, that is uh, funding government out of the naturally rising value of uh, our natural resources and our natural monopolies. Uh, that unearned income is what should be funding government, not the blood, sweat and tears of labour and capital. All right, I look forward to reporting into you next week from another idyllic location here in Queensland, Australia. Check the show notes on earthsharing.org.au.